Let us pray. Dear Lord, help us as we read these scriptures together. Come bring your understanding and reveal your truth. Come open our minds, our hearts, and our souls to all that these words of life offer us. We long to be continually challenged, transformed, and renewed by your word. May we hear your voice of life as we read and draw close to you. Amen. Our Psalter reading this morning is taken from Psalms chapter 85, verses 8 through 13. Psalm 85 is a communal prayer for help. And our passage today expresses confidence that the prayer will indeed come true. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground, and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and will make a path for his steps. The word of our Lord. Today's Old Testament reading from the Common Lectionary is from Amos chapter 7. I think it's really important whenever we encounter a difficult word in Scripture, whether it be from a prophet or in the Old and New Testament, to read it, to experience it in light of what we know has happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross, in a sense, casts a shadow over the entire Scriptures that remind us of how much God loves us and claims us and all that God has done for us. So hold that as together we listen to and make sense of this difficult word. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 15. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, 
Flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy in Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it's a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I'm a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Amos is a collection, a collection of sayings and visions from the prophet Amos, who was alive in the 8th century BCE, during a time of relative prosperity and peace in the nation of Israel. Throughout the book of Amos, Amos appeals to God's justice and God's righteousness as inseparable components of God's commands. Despite being a simple sheep herder who occasionally dresses a sycamore tree, Amos holds nothing back. He holds nothing back when he confronts God's people with the word he's been given. His critiques of the social, political, and religious structures of Israel are brutal in their honesty and their precision. In particular, Amos condemns the social inequities that favor the rich over the poor, but he doesn't stop there. Amos also critiques the people's worship, calling their worship, worship empty and a failure, and that it does not promote God's justice and God's righteousness. Now, the text we heard today is one in a series of three visions in Amos chapter 7. In the first two visions, Amos sees images of destruction, Locusts devouring newly sprouted grass and fire raining down from heaven, consuming the land. After each vision, Amos pleads with God. He pleads with God to forgive the people of Israel. And in the first two visions, each time, God listens and God relents and replies to Amos that the vision he has seen will not come to pass. But the third vision has a different outcome. It's a vision centered on an image of measurement. The Hebrew term anach, usually described here as a plumb line, is a rare word and only used here in the Old Testament. The image of the third vision conveys this measurement, God's measurement of Israel's actions and behaviors. Despite Amos' pleas for forgiveness, this time the judgment will come to pass. The sacred places will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and the nation will fall. It seems for too long the worship of God and the righteousness of God have been disconnected in the lives of the people, and God will have it no more. Sometime in the early 1980s, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was interviewed on public television. At the time, apartheid was going strong and there was no sign that it would end anytime soon. During the interview, Tutu said a curious thing that's often quoted, at least part of the quote is often shared. He 
He said this, when the white people arrived in South Africa, we had the land and they had the Bible. They said, let us pray. When we opened our eyes, they had the land and we had the Bible. And then he paused and finished his statement with a line that is often forgotten. And we, he said, we got the better of the deal. For those who love the worship of God, which I am counting all of you in that category, for those of us who worship God, there is a union more important than security and comfort. For those like you who care for the church, for this church, for the church universal and its future, there is a partnership more critical than growth or financial viability. For those who seek to please God in the sanctuary and in the marketplace and in their homes and in their lives, there is a pairing even more essential than orthodoxy and the preservation of tradition. The relationship that cannot be ignored is the linking of our worship and our service, our piety and our compassion. Worship that is pleasing to God leads to action in the world, action on behalf of the poor and the suffering and the neglected. You know this. You live this. Action that is informed by God's word, supported by God's spirit, and imbued with the humility that only comes from honest corporate confession. Throughout the Gospels, however, Jesus warns his followers to not be hypocrites, to not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who outwardly practice their faith, but inwardly their hearts have grown cold. The Greek word for hypocrite literally means stage actor. The Pharisees and scribes are acting out their faith, but it's not transforming their lives. They're putting on a show. We know the worship of God is not a performance, first and foremost. It's not a play meant to distract us or bring us joy. Worship is a practice that is meant to draw us deeper and deeper into the work of God and the world God has created and placed in our care. I'll be honest, I don't envy the task God has given Amos, not a bit. It is not easy. It's never easy to preach a word of challenge that God has placed on your heart, especially to people you love and care about. I don't envy Amos, but I'm impressed by his courage and his faith. He had no training, just a word to share. But as I lift up Amos, I, I don't want us to disparage the other character in today's drama, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. To be fair, his role in the community of faith is just as important as Amos. For Amaziah is tasked with the preservation of worship, the medium by which people give honor and praise and glory to God. I don't envy Amos or Amaziah or their proxies today. For even though these two lived millennia ago, Amos and Amaziah are still at odds in congregations today. There are always those in a church, any church, this church, who desire more justice and peacemaking. And they are always not seated too far in the sanctuary from those who are deeply concerned with the preservation of the institution and its sacred worship. The Amos among us is the one who speaks the uncomfortable word within the community, in the sacred space sometimes, 
and their proclamation is rarely met with affirmation or conversion. It's a hard word to hear. It's usually met with suspicion and fear. The Amaziah among us is the one who knows the faults and the fissures in the church family, in the community of faith. They know how complicated all this is to hold together, and so they are pragmatic, practical in their application of the faith. While they know prophets have their place to ensure the long-term vitality of the institution, the Amaziahs among us often try to mute or distract the proclamation, any proclamation that could disturb or destroy the sacred institution. Both love the church and its people, but in spite of what they or we might think, Amos and Amaziah are not adversaries. They are partners in God's work in the world. Worship and justice were never meant to be disconnected. They are not two separate things. Worship that does not compel us to confront and question policies and practices that preference the rich over the poor and promote injustice and inequality, that's not worship at all. It's play-acting. And yet, justice that is not grounded in worship, justice that is not supported by a deep and abiding understanding of God's mercy and grace, can quickly turn into a righteous crusade that hurts as many people as it seeks to help. I recently learned of a church whose pastor proclaimed that dismantling white supremacy was the primary work of the church. Now, while you know my passion for racial justice, I could not disagree more with that statement. While it's true in my faith, in my understanding of the faith anyway, that churches have an important part to play in dismantling all systems and structures, that, including white supremacy, that promote racism and injustice, we must center this work as a church within the context of our worship, where the word of God is preached and heard and responded to, where all are find a welcome, and where every ideology is subject to the grace and mercy of God. Our primary task as a community of faith is to center our lives around God and God's word, both here in this sacred space and out there in the world. I often think of our Quaker brothers and sisters who often will have a sign above the doors exiting the sanctuary, a sign that can only be seen on your way out of the space, a sign that reads, now our worship begins. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. I think it's really important. Churches are not called to be partisan. We are not called to lift up or tear down one political party or ideology or policy even over another. But we are called to engage together in dismantling and confronting any injustice that runs contrary to God's will. You cannot help the poor, free the captives, and give sight to the blind without getting involved in the way the world works. Policies, they may matter, Budgets communicate values, and laws reflect the will of the people. What we do out there matters just as much to God as what we do in here. In his book, The Culture of Disbelief, Stephen Carter describes how when he speaks to civic groups, he often addresses the topic, quote, the most dangerous children in America. 
To illustrate his point, he tells two stories, two different stories. The first story is about a terrifying day that he and his five-year-old daughter were caught in a crossfire of a gun battle between rival gangs in Queens. They were momentarily separated in the shooting, and he could not get to her until the shooting had stopped. It was the most horrifying five minutes of his life. When Carter tells this story, the audience, his audience generally gasps in horror and in sympathy. Then Carter tells the story about the day he was commuting on the train from his home in Stamford, Connecticut to New Haven, where he taught at Yale University. As the train made its various stops, a lot of teenagers got on board, heading for private schools along the train's route. At one stop, a group of girls got on, and Carter happened to overhear their conversation. They were heatedly debating which community, which town, was more fashionable and exclusive, Westport or Fairfield. One of the girls from Westport named a person of great wealth who lived in her town, only to be countered by a girl from Fairfield who named an even wealthier person who lived in her community. The argument went back and forth until one of the Westport girls came up with an announcement she saw as the turning point in the debate. She named a world-famous entertainer who, she claimed, actually lived in Westport. Not true, said one of the Fairfield girls. The entertainer did not live in Westport. He was only visiting a friend there. She knew this for a fact, she said, because she had met this entertainer at her father's store. Hearing this, the Westport girl raised up and hooted disdainfully, your father has a store? The Fairfield girl, realizing too late her faux pas, cringed in shame as the Westport girl drove the blade home. What does he sell there? Hardware? Carter then asked his audience, which of the two groups of children is the more dangerous? The Queens gang members or the Connecticut private school girls? particularly most of Carter's audience say the gang members. Then Carter points out that the gang members, violent as they are, are closed in by their neighborhood and tragically most will likely be dead or in jail before long. The girls on the train, on the other hand, are attending the best schools in the land. They will no doubt be admitted to the finest universities and will go on to important careers where they'll make decisions that will affect a great many people. In the long run, the world they see, the values they assume, the choices they make may in fact be more lethal than the gang's bullets. Whomever you call to serve as your next pastor, know there will be times when they are called by God to be an Amos, to deliver a message to you that will be uncomfortable and hard to hear. At the same time, they will have the added difficulty of delivering this message while trying, trying to fulfill the role of Amaziah as well, the one responsible for the maintenance of worship in this sacred space. And as your next pastor tries to fill the roles of both Amos and Amaziah, I encourage you to show them the same grace you have shown me. Know that whatever, whenever they muster up the courage to speak a hard, difficult word to you in the context of your sacred worship. It's because they believe you matter.
because they believe you have influence. It's because they believe you have power. It's because they believe that by God's grace, you can make a difference. The time we spend together every Sunday for an hour or so is not performative. It's powerful. What happens in here can change the world. May it be so. Amen.